Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Nato Green, who I've been wanting to get uh, back on this podcast for quite some time. He was a season one guest and uh, I know him, of course, through the Bugleverse. Nato is a community organizer and a parent and a, a cocktail connoisseur and I just enjoy talking to him so much. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, you can support NATO online at natogreen.com and of course you can support me at patreon.com slash Alice Fraser uh, where we have all of my stand-up specials which you can get there for free, my weekly tea with Alice, salons and my writers meetings if you'd like to write with me. I do a writers meeting once a week uh, where we write together for an hour and then we have a workshop hour where if you want, you know, my feedback on your work or we can we can chat through ideas there also if you want a one-on-one i now offer consultations which is at uh, calendly.com slash tea with alice you can sign up for a consultation there and we talk about whatever it is that you want to talk about that's all the plugging i have to do for now i'll talk to you again next week you're having tea with alice Welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. Who are you and what are you drinking? I am Nato Green, and today I am drinking uh, the uh, Havana Club Age 7 Year uh, Rum. This is Cuban rum. Mm. It was my favorite go-to rum for sipping when I was in Cuba. I know you don't partake, Alice. I don't judge those who do yeah. have the old tea, as I like to call it, <laughs> as, far, as far as tea goes. Do you drink tea at all, or are you just you're you're a very cocktail guy? I'm a cocktail guy and also a coffee guy. So if I'm going to drink a warm beverage, it should be coffee. It should be coffee, not a, not a warm cocktail. No, no. I it, rare is the time that I want a warm uh, a warm cocktail. My problem is that I'm co- I I don't drink enough water. I'm constantly dehydrated because I'm alternating between coffee and alcohol. And <laughs> I don't drink soda, I don't drink juices, I don't drink kombucha or coconut water, I just drink coffee and alcohol. I don't want to have biased reasoning here, but I feel like there's space in your calendar for some tea, maybe. <laughs> Way to stay hydrated. What kind of tea would you recommend? Oh, what kind of coffee do you drink? I'm assuming that you drink a black coffee because of the kind of the Cuban side, but I'm, I'm not sure. If, maybe if you're an American coffee drinker, then you're kind of a creamy, sweet guy. No, no, no. Tell me what your I, taste is. Black coffee. Black coffee. So if you like a black coffee, you would probably like like an oolong or a pu'er mm-hmm. tea, which is a, maybe like a, a fermented tea. It's a bit more strong, more intense, kind of punchy between the eyes kind of tea. Nice. Okay. And do you sweeten it? No. Okay. No. I have another question about tea. Yes. So my wife was just gifted an electric kettle. Yes. Welcome to civilization. <laughs> that has... <laughs> different settings based on like based on what kind of tea so here's my question is is the temp- temperature of the boiling water based on the type of tea is that a real thing or is that rubbish it'll be that like that is a real thing like yeah, that, oh that. for oolong you need to it the water needs to be boiled to 175 degrees but if it's green tea it should be 185 degrees and if it's Earl Grey, it should be 100. It was like some complicated schedule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is one of those things. Does it need, need, need to be that? No. I'm not a tea snob. I'm not a tea expert. I'm a tea fan. Um, but I can tell you it does make a difference. In the same way as like saying, does a percolator make a difference? The kind of percolator, does that make a difference to the kind of coffee you get? Of course it makes a difference. So if you want 
if you want to really kind of go in on the subtle flavors of a tea, like a green tea, you wanted a slightly lower, like something like a gyokuro, which is like top of the grade, you kind of want between 60 and 70 degrees, not very hot at all. But something like a black tea, you can kind of be a bit more robust and it brings out the flavors in that way. So like, it does make a difference. It's one of those things that's as deep as you want to go. If you pour boiling water on a green tea, will it wreck it? No. Uh, but you're probably not going to go on the adventure of the flavors. Like I, I really like a, a, a very unprocessed like Japanese green tea, which is like yogurt. And so I'll sit down and have that like experience with some, you know, crunchy peas or something and some red bean on the side. And it's like a whole There's thing. A, you'll have make a bang a gong and wear a robe. and Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes I just want to get some caffeine into my system or I want something cold in my mouth and I'll just make an ice green tea or, you know, like it's just, right, right. I, I, th- I think it's your, it's your appetite for, the faff of it yeah, yeah. as an indulgence that dictates whether you care about things like the temperature. I mean, there's something interesting there about taste to me because like I am uh, like most people th- would think of me and I think of myself generally as fairly discerning um, about a lot of, th- you know, uh, cocktails and coffee and food. And I'm, you know, you might say that I'm a coffee snob, except I have limits. Like, yeah. Okay. And so when I when like I think of myself as a coffee snob until I'm around a real coffee snob, and then I'm like, oh, I'm actually not a coffee snob. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. the people who think that there are tasting notes in coffee, and who are like, you know, hints of Satsuma, or whatever. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. lying. Yeah, I I will grant you <laughs> that you might be able to detect hints of citrus, but a specific citrus within the yeah. pantheon of that's not a. I do not believe that you could really taste that. And then they get into the grind and what the fineness of the grind and the filter, that kind of stuff. I, similarly about, about food, like, like I like to cook and I cook a lot and I'm into stuff. And then I took a, I took a, a, a whole hog cooking class once. And there were these people there that had their like, you know, $3,000, you know, Italian meat slicers. And I was like, Oh, I'm not actually that into this. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's sort of, I think there's two things at play. One is your genuine pleasure. Like if you get more pleasure from good coffee than you do from less good coffee and that, that that's sort of down to your own kind of physiognomy almost, like you're down to your own kind of taste buds and, and so on and so forth. And then also there's this kind of thing that you can cultivate, which is like an affect, your own aesthetic of yourself. Are you the kind of person who cares about this kind of thing? And then that's just a matter of your own, sense of yourself are you a three thousand dollar meat slicer guy or are you a oh nice knife yeah. kind of guy or look oh it's damascus steel or you know like i feel like you've got a whole range of of i'm always interested when you meet somebody who says they're a fan of something but doesn't know a lot about it right. i don't think that makes them not a fan but it's a different you know it's an interesting kind of version of a fan almost their pleasure lies in just enjoying it and not being interested in it yeah like i also you know i've always had sort of a like a collector brain so i like knowing about things you know so i i like jazz but i like jazz i think as much because i like listening to jazz as i like that sort of my brain enjoys the project of like this record label and this recording session and these arrangements of these compositions and you know this is who's collaborating on this album and that kind of stuff as the sort of auditory experience of just listening to the music 
And do you get pleasure out of sort of understanding jazz in a way that for a lot of people, jazz is just noise? Totally. Yeah. I mean, and sort of with a lot of stuff, like, like years ago, back when I was a truck driver and I had a lot of time to listen to cassettes on the road, kids, cassettes were something that you listened to um, <laughs> where you would put it in the dashboard of your car and listen to something. And I listened to an entire lecture series on the history of classical music, like a 30 lecture series. Wow. And so understanding like why Baroque is different from the classical era and understanding the structure of a fugue at like, and then being able to listen to it and appreciate what it meant sort of compositionally completely changed my enjoyment and pleasure of the thing. And then I had a delivery, I was a car messenger and I had a delivery to the guy on the, doing the lectures. And I like, amazing. I like ring his doorbell and he comes to the door to sign for the thing. And I didn't, it like, the coin didn't drop until I heard him speak and I recognized the voice. And I was like, and I looked at the name and I was like, are you the guy from the tapes? And he said, <laughs> uh, why, yes, that, that is me. And I said, actually, I have a question for you, if you don't mind. And he said, go ahead. And so then I got to ask him a very esoteric, geeky question about his perspective on opera versus Baroque music. Uh, and he was happy to sit there and talk to me about it. Of course he was happy. I mean, that is the that is the dream, particularly for people who are in these refined areas of like, you know, high culture stuff. Knowing that there is a truck driver somewhere who's getting something out of your work is like some comfort to the sense that I think a lot of them have that they're, <laughs> you know, that they're in the ivory tower and they're separate from real people and right. they're not helping anyone. But there's, you know, the, I think there's a pleasure in being part of a secret society, but also there's a guilt in feeling like there's, you know, it's yeah. not available to truck drivers. So I think you probably made that man's life. And he didn't know that I might be the most iffy proletarian of all time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what have you been wrestling with of late, NATO? Well, Alice, I mean, this is not a light topic, but uh, parenting. Oof. And specifically parenting teens in the sort of like there's been a bunch of ink spilt about the sort of post-pandemic teen mental health crisis and I am living it and you know feel like I have the like emotional intelligence you know as much I'm I'm as present and able to you know respond as anybody and feel completely out of my depth in terms of what my kids go to an art school and uh and I went to like a like a spoken word reading of the stu other students at their art, art high school. And I came away being like, man, these kids, fucking a lot of feelings out there. Um, yeah. It's just, it's super heavy right now. And like lots of kids struggling with, you know, one of my kids was talking to me last night about how, like I was saying in my generation, the public health concerns about how teens were doing were about teen smoking and teen pregnancy and drunk driving um, and sort of behaviors that could be socially enabled. And we didn't even have the vocabulary to talk about things like being neurodivergent. And, you know, and so the, the kids have this whole sort of mental furniture to think about, you know, the layer of like the routine problems of, of adolescence, plus the pandemic, plus, you know, climate anxiety and, you know, gender and sexual identity in a way that's completely different from what I grew up with, you know, and self-harm. And my kids said that, you know, she said she felt like the teachers in school and health class are still talking to the like kids just say no to drugs generation and not, yeah. you know, 
do you have an unending, all-consuming sadness about the nature of existence? <laughs> yeah, and and the nature of like being existing online in this attention economy, where these apps and and businesses are incentivized to colonize your brain, to take oh. your attention and turn it to whatever they want, in order to keep you on their websites. And the thing, what that functionality does to the human brain, having your attention controlled in that way is terrifying and you know i i mean i can't be too righteous about it because i like i'm probably more compulsive about my phone than i would like to be and then it's healthy um and so you know and it's not so it's not just like my kids are swimming in it like they're not super active on social media but they have their they have phones and they're texting people all the time and you know i don't want to be the in my day guy but in my day you know (laughs) like when i was in ninth grade it was before email so yeah. I talked to people on the phone and I talked to them one at a time and until my parents said, get off the phone, I need to make a phone call. Um, yeah. And so like there's this level of of sort of, it's like all of us are drinking from a fire hose of content and have trouble all the time and like have trouble having the stillness of, you know, contemplation and reflect and even like synthesizing all the shit that we just absorbed. Yeah, just even even I think if you're not even thinking about the content itself, just the, the procedures, the practices, the physicality of what you're doing with your brain is you're putting it into this one space and then things are hitting you. You're, it's a very, um, it's simultaneously overstimulating and, and sedating. You feel like if you're not absorbing this information, you're somehow, you know, if you're not available to text messages, if you're not available to people needing you, if you're not holding yourself open at all times, then you're somehow abandoning this thing. But in reality, you're, you're very static. You're not proactive. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I personally had enough anxiety around the last elections that I disabled a bunch of my notifications and it helped, man. <laughs> I tell yeah. you what. Yeah. And then weirdly, I had a couple of like stand-up clips go viral on Instagram and get millions of views. And I got so inundated with notifications that I'd like, like there's so many that I can't look at them anymore. And so yeah. in some ways it's, it's liberating to be able to disengage in that way to be like, well, I can't pay attention to what a hundred thousand notifications have to say. So I'm just going to ignore it all. Um, yeah. <laughs> and if, if someone really has something to say to me, they're going to figure out how to reach out directly. And one, I mean, one of the questions that I've been thinking about is like, you know, that there's a, that it's sort of when you have a vocabulary to talk about a thing, you perceive it more. Yes. And so. Bring us back to coffee tasting notes. Yeah, right. Exactly. So my kids have the vocabulary to talk about ADHD and neurodivergence and, and mental illness and mental health in a way that I never had. And you know, what I, one of the things that I've been thinking about with them is like, how do I support their vulnerability and support their exploration of like their own identity in the world and how they, you know, it seems healthier in many ways that they're, that they can talk about boundaries and consent and effective communication and coping strategies in an intentional way that I felt like I learned very haphazardly. And at the same time, you know, I also want to cultivate a sense of resilience and strength and sort of grit and that like an understanding that they're not going to get bowled over by their lives. You know, I realized that by posing it that way, I'm, I'm suggesting that like 
awareness of mental health and strength are somehow at odds. But I so I don't know. I mean, this is like how how do you how do you you know I'm I'm trying to figure out how do you parent in this moment and support your kids to be their whole selves and also understand that they're not fragile people. Yes, well, there's a point at which ruminating or something on, on something or letting it fill your entire view screen is a disservice to the rest of your life, and there's a there's a way in which having the vocabulary to deal with something isn't necessarily being equipped to deal with something. It can just mean you can draw a more elaborate map that you can then mistake for the territory. You know, it doesn't... Talking about your problems, particularly internal problems, can be a a relief, it can be a release, it can be a catharsis, it can help you have a perspective on them, it can help you share them with other people in a way that then they can, you know, help you. It also can be self-indulgent or it can cultivate a problem that you have. You can end up sort of chewing and redigesting it in a way that isn't helpful or isn't useful or, you know, the, the, the practical advice of like go for a walk might be more useful than talking about it for another hour. Right. But it's almost impossible as a parent to be able to tell that to your teenagers, I imagine. Yeah, I mean... I, the way that I've said it to them, and I'm not, you know, I, again, I have no idea if this is right. And by the way, Alice, I'm sorry, this is like such a bloody depressing thing to drop on you. You know, we can talk That's about what tea with Alice is, man. We want to talk about all of the stuff that you're not sure about. We can talk about how much I enjoy the movie RRR, even though it's probably Hindu fascist propaganda. <laughs> um, we can talk about that instead if you like. No, I want to talk about this as somebody with a with a pre-teenager. Uh, I mean, she's one, but. <laughs> You know, this is in my future. <laughs> this is in your future. Yeah, I mean, and it's like, you you know, the, the, the phase of parenting that you're in is where it's tiring because it's relentless. Like, it requires a lot of attention, and you're on all the time, and it's, you know, like, there's there's some comedians who joked about parenting a toddler as a 24-hour suicide watch. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, because they're constantly, like, roaming into traffic and whatever. Yes, I'm currently playing a hilarious game with her that is called Go, 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 Stop! And she finds it very funny. But for me, I'm like, I need to teach you this skill because I, she's now fast enough that she can get to something before I can grab her. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I need to be able to have a stop button. I need to equip her right. with a stop button. <laughs> and that is, you know, that's an existential thing that I need to, you know, gently and hilariously introduce into her um, life. I mean, there is a version of that that I'm still dealing with, which is you know, with with like very intelligent and not surprisingly because they're my kids, argumentative teenagers, which is that like when I'm thinking about their safety, sometimes I'm not up for discussion. Sometimes I need to say like recently we were on the bus and I heard someone in the back of the bus freaking out and I saw that there was a fight about to start and I was like, we're getting off the bus right now and we're going to wait yeah. for the next bus. And my kids were like, why? But we don't want to blah, blah, blah. And I was like, this is not up for debate. Move. Um, So, you know, for your safety, we need to agree that when I say move now, we're not going to have a discussion about it. Yeah. A friend of mine who has a nine-year-old who's a very argumentative, very intelligent uh, person, she came over the other day and said this thing that really struck me. She said, it's not fair for you to make that decision. You don't need to make that decision. That is for me to worry about. It's not fair to ask a child to make that level of decision. 
So I know you want to make this decision. You don't have the information to make that decision and it's not fair for you to, you know, it's not fair for you to take my job. My job is to figure this out. And I thought that was a really interesting way to put it. I'm not sure if that's going to be useful for me, but it, I made a note of it in my head. <laughs> yeah. Your phase is is exhausting, you know, and you're up at night and there's, you know, all the bodily stuff and there's poo everywhere. And, and then at some point, it's like, it's less just physically exhausting and more mentally and emotionally taxing as your kids yeah. reach, reach the age where it's like, they're wrestling with stuff that I'm not sure I figured out, you know, buddy, I'm still on the fence about how to handle friendships. You know, yeah. I don't know what the answer is. You know, all I know is that I'm, well, I'm, I'm going to do my best and I'll keep you company as you face these hard things. And there's a lot of that, uh, where, you know, they're, they're like on the horizon of things that I feel like I understand and I have to figure out how to keep showing up for them in the midst of that because they're my kids and I'm devoted to them. And, you know, I, I will, you know, wade through any discomfort that I have about my, you know, in the same way that like they can get me to jump into colder water than I want to because they want me to play with them. Um, Like I'll do that emotionally too, but you know, this, this, this stuff that they're, uh, you know, I'm sort of continually up against like, look kid, I don't know what the answer is. I'm just going to, you know, let's keep talking. Yeah, it's really interesting. I can sort of see the beginnings of that and, and, and sort of having to reckon with your own, you know, in order to function, you, you, you paper over some of your own gaps and then you find there's a, a little foot stepping on that paper and it might not be strong enough to hold. Like uh, she's just started to have tantrums. And, and when I say tantrums, just having a, having a scream uh, when she's upset for a few minutes. She's a very, very good kid, but she's teething at the moment. And the other day I was trying to put her shoes on and she just was flinging herself around. And my, there she is downstairs, my immediate like emotional instinct was don't reward this, don't respond to this, don't react to this. Because that was the way I was done. <laughs> was I, you know, because mum had a hyperacute reaction to sound, we'd just be put out the front door until we got our shit together and then we would be allowed back in the house. And so my reaction was like, kind of withdraw affection until she behaves. That was my instinct. And like kind of having to, in that moment, literally in a second, come up against this really like deep-seated thing, go, actually, my parents weren't perfect. <laughs> this, is, this is not a good thing. How do I do it better? Like, what can I do in this moment when what I want, well, first, first reaction is to be angry and upset because it's a horrible noise being made and, you know, violence being enacted on you. And then to shut that down is literally to shut down both of those reactions being wrong and then having to find a third way within one and a half seconds. It's just like, it's so tiring. Yeah. And do you find that, like, that it's eye-opening for you to see that what's his name keith chester kevin the father that his buttons <laughs> doesn't matter um, that his buttons don't get pushed like yours do yes and and then you're like oh wait a minute maybe i you know maybe i could be an asshole in a different way <laughs> yeah and that you're not so you're not the best you know the things that you would think like i'm really patient or i'm i'm the patient one i'm the calm one it's like 
oh no, there are things about which I am entirely irrational. And there's things about which I am far more easily triggered or far less patient than I thought I would be. I feel like our children are like a, like the most elegantly calibrated device to detect exactly the thing about us that we hate the most about ourselves that we've most avoided ever dealing with. Yeah, yeah, and then they just you have to deal with it. And then that's the that's the not to get catholic about it, but that's the the privilege of it is getting to become a better person if you're doing it in any kind of mindful way. Right. You know, I don't think it's catholic. I I think it's like I think it's a great thing about being a parent that you get, you know, if if you open if you're open to the opportunity. I mean, I you know, I think I I mean, I don't want to say that there's a virtue to suffering. Oh, yeah. But that I do think this difficulty in itself is a privilege. And one of the one of the positive outcomes is this very selfish one, which is that I get to fix this thing that I probably never would have had to fix. Yeah. I, I mean, could have got by without fixing this. I think I think that with parenting, you know, we um we went through several years of infertility before we had the kids. And so by the time that the twins were born, you know, in order to persevere, to keep trying to become parents, we had to be super clear about why we wanted to become parents. And I, so get, you know, having to like go through a lot of adversity in order to become a parent, you know, I mean, I feel like it's, it's, it's a privilege if parenting is a project that you chose for yourself. Um, you know, that if, if parenting is something that you're doing because it's something that you thought that you were supposed to do and you're checking the boxes on, you know, your identity, it's a, you, you know, I think that's, it's a different relationship to what that, what those challenges are. Do you know what I mean? Well, yes. Then, then it tends, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of people who are sort of come into becoming better parents, but I think for some people it is just about papering over the cracks to make it look the way you want it to look. And by some people, probably we mean most of humanity until the last 30 years of human existence. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to stop a tantrum than it is to deal with a tantrum. Yeah. All you need to do is frighten the child out of being loud. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so like, you know, what you were saying about is it useful to go for a walk or, or you know, continue to talk about this for another hour? Like, what I've been talking to my kids about is like, I was a nervous wreck and anxious and miserable and felt bad all the time when I was 14 also. And when I say it gets better, part of what I mean is that as I got older, I learned how to not believe my own feelings, you know, that like, oh, these are feelings that I'm having, but that doesn't mean that they're some sort of accurate picture of the world. And I also learned how to make choices about where I put my attention. And so I, you know, I catastrophize and I still think, uh, think the worst in lots of situations, but I have built the sort of mental habit to be able to know that I have a choice about whether I put my attention on my doomsday scenarios or put my attention on something else. I think where you put your attention is such the central thing, I think, for everyone, but particularly for teenagers. Because being a teenager is, to a certain extent, feeling a lot, disproportionately reacting to everything and feeling like everything is 
huge. Like just, you just, whatever, the lenses in your eyes distort when you're a teenager and everything just seems so fucking massive. And it's because you don't really have enough experience. I mean, you've got the hormones, that's one thing. And then you also don't have enough experience to contextualize the thing that is happening, to sort of put it in proportion with anything else. So it is just whatever's filling your view. You don't know if it's a an, a fly the size of an elephant or it's, if it's just a fly sitting on the lens of your right. glasses. Yeah, yeah that's um, right. But then, yeah, how do you as a parent help them figure that out without making it feel like you're invalidating the intensity, which is real? Right, and that, you know, because they have access to the internet and they have access to so much news, it's like they're aware in an intellectual level that it's, you know, it's it's easy to sort of cherry pick your comparisons, that they're aware at an intellectual level that there are people who are depressed forever and there are people who are, you know, adults and who are immobilized and there are people who, you know, that, uh, you know, Robin Williams committed suicide and Anthony Bourdain committed suicide and so on, you know, and that some people never, were never able to get over their, you know, their depression. And so when I say... I've made a decision as a parent not to lie to my children and not to like sugarcoat things and be like, everything's going to be fine. Uh, but when I say it gets better, how do they know that I'm not lying to them? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it is more likely than not to get better, I think. Yeah. And, you know, the fact of like the circumstances of why it, from Anthony Bourdain's perspective, it didn't get better. Like that's not a story, you know, we all know how the story ended, but we don't know everything that led up to that. Yeah, that's really interesting. And in terms of, you know, your kind of parenting process, how are you with them if they don't like what you're saying or if they don't like you? <laughs> you know, I, um, I'm fine. Um, because my kids are my kids, they're all so funny and no one is more savage at like roasting me than my kids. <laughs> One of my kids told me recently that I smell like a pig that drank too much coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, that's amazing. It's just a level of precision and like, it's they're so funny. And so partly as a comedian, like game recognized game, you know, yeah. that if they burn me, I'm like, this is, this is, this, this is beautiful. I'm so proud. And also, you know, I'm pretty, like, I know that on some level, like, no matter how much rejection or hostility they appear to throw at me, I sort of don't ever believe it. Like, I know that on some level, they still want to be close. And that, you know, when they're rejecting me or mad at me or telling me that I'm stupid and to get out of their room or whatever, like, I know that that's age-appropriate individuation, but I don't, I like, I don't ever take it to heart. And so I just sort of, you know, like I play the long game and I hang out and I'm available and usually at some point they're like okay now now that you know go away now now come back and snuggle you know yeah yeah I mean I certainly on the toddler level on the on the baby level it's sort of heartbreaking because if you like the other day I was um picking her up and for the first time I was like down in a squat grabbed her up onto my knee and was about to rise from the squat and she flung herself off backwards um, and hit her head on the floor and just, I couldn't catch her. She donked her head. It wasn't like a major fall, but she immediately 
came to me for comfort, despite the fact that I was the one who had hurt her. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, this is so much. What a terrible thing. <laughs> like, and of course, it's right that she should still trust me. But yeah, that, that thing of go away, get out of my room, but you better still be in the house. You'd better be on the, on the other side of that door is the silent, unspoken part of that sentence, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and like I, like we've really tried to sort of create a, you know, a safe environment and it seems like it's working. Like Mike, you know, there's like, there's just, it seems like there's other teenagers hanging around my house all the time. So our house may, you know, I don't get carried away and be like, we're the cool parents, but we might be the cool parents where the other teens are just feel like this is a safe house for us. To, this is a safe house with the cool parents that we can be cool, be chill around. That's good. You, you want to be... You want to be the safe house, but you don't want to be the low jurisdiction zone, right? Which is a different thing. That's yeah. the that's the parents that don't give a shit. Yeah, no, no, I don't want to be the parents who are like, "Oh, I'll buy you beer." Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't want to be that guy, but want to be like, you know, these these are the parents I can talk to. Yeah, and that's I think that's an important kind of aunt role or uncle role in society and it's a community role that I think is sort of factored out of modern thinking about the family that you want somebody in your extended circle who's far enough away that you can complain to them about your parents or tell them about your problems or tell them when you're in real trouble and they don't have enough stakes to get you in trouble or fuck you over but they do have enough stakes that they care and they might be able to help. I mean, for for me, like when I was a child, there, you know, there was there were other adults that a bunch of adults that mostly gay folks that maintain made a point of maintaining independent relationships with me, and so like when my parents got divorced and stuff, there was just these other adults around who would like take me to the movies or take me out to for tacos or whatever, and it just like it it so helped having access to other adults who was not my parents if I needed them when I was in a tough spot as a kid. Yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest reasons to invest in community, invest your time in community, because I think it makes, if you create a safer set of people in the world, people who feel this kind of duty and obligation to one another, then maybe there's someone like that for your kids as well. Right, and I'm going to be like that for somebody else's kids, you know. And, yeah. Uh as long as everybody has more people to talk to than just their crazy parents. Yeah. That that's the real that's the real problem. Being the crazy parents is is tricky. But I think about this with my niece and I think my job is to maintain good enough relations with her that if she runs away from home she will run to me. Right. You know, that there's there's enough there's enough space that she sees me as enough of an individual that not just an extension of her, of her, of her father just because I'm his sister, like that, she, that I'm my own person and that I'm non-judgmental enough and that I'm safe enough. Yeah, and often that kind of safety doesn't look like anything. Like, like I have a couple of cousins who, when they were teenagers, their parents put them on a plane to come stay with us for a weekend or whatever. And, yeah, nice. uh And like... Nothing in particular happened. Like we went for a walk, we looked at flowers, we went to, so, had ice cream, whatever. You know, it's not like anything profound happened. But you know, these kids are now in their twenties, and I think one of them is thirty now. And we so and we've heard that like that that time was like incredibly profound and formative for them. Huh. So 
you know, just like being an available adult for young people can be a, it's just a huge relief for them. Yeah, I have a I have a sort of a semi-distant relative, not not a blood relative, but uh, one who is now in high school and she's she's of an intellectual bent and she just wants to wants art and culture and she wants to do dance and 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 she's in a town where that's not really widely available. And so just being able to go, hey, if you ever want to just come to Sydney, we can go to the library. We can go watch a show. We can go to the opera house. Like, just knowing that that's there. We can read a Dance in the Garden novel. We can read a Dance in the Garden novel looking over the harbour. Just knowing that that's there or knowing that that's a way that people can be as well. Just seeing different models for how to be a person I think is so useful that you think if you're a weirdo or if you're, you know, if you're a weird kid like I was, seeing that there are grown-ups who are weird and happy is huge you know that they have a place of you know nice nice books and nice couches and right yeah there's some i mean you know when i was so when i was in high in in eighth ninth and tenth grade there was a comic book shop i hung out at like all the time yeah and and there was like a community of people around the comic shop and the guy who, I mean, it was a, like, it, you know, there was a whole arc to it because the guy who owned the comic shop sort of was that kind of like, you know, mentor, like older brother figure for me or something, you know, and gave me access to some other ideas and world and that kind of stuff. And then at some point it became, you know, he was also a fucking mess. You know, what with being an adult who owned a comic book shop who spent, probably more time than he should have hanging out with people who were half his age. Um, yeah. Like at some point it became clear that it was also a dysfunctional relationship and I had to separate from him. But that's also so, that's like so useful. Like I had, I had this experience when I was a teenager, my mom was quite depressed and, and with her illness, not very able to do the things that, you know, often mothers do with teenage girls. And so <laughs> this is like so bad. My dad uh, asked his, uh, 2IC at the company that he worked, that he was the CEO of, um, if she would take me out and, like, go shopping, just like girls do, like go and buy clothes because I didn't have clothes. I was in sort of sloppy hand-me-downs or wearing my brother's clothes or, you know, just didn't have any sense of... And she was, like, a business lady in her 40s and she took me to these, like, expensive clothes shops and... That incredibly embarrassing afternoon, like we went bra shopping and stuff, it was just really embarrassing. But it gave me this incredible insight of like, this is not, I really liked her. She was a very kind woman and this is not the kind of woman I would like to be. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it was just that, because so much of being a teenager is trying on different versions of yourself of, and, and thinking naively probably that you get to choose right. who you become and how you turn out and and so that feels like all this, it's kind of daunting, but you, you think you can become anything you want. This is a bit of a, of a tangent, but I have a loaded question, Alice. Yes. How did you wear your hair when you were a teenager? I wore it in one plait down the back, usually. A, a plait? Um, you mean a braid? Yes. Well, yeah. What, so in Australian slang, or at least the zone that I was brought up in, a, a plait is a very simple three- three-strand braid, and a braid is like a more elaborate 
situation, uh-huh. usually starting on the head. So uh-huh. a plaid is just kind of you pull it and you just, whereas a braid sort of would be the one of those ones that's like athletes wear where it's quite tightly uh-huh. tied to the head and then it goes right, right, right. from there. So, but yes, yes, a braid. Uh-huh. Okay. So did you have, you, you, you never had like a very stupid hair phase? No, I never had a teenage rebellion phase because my mom was sick and having a lot of emotions at that time. So I put off my kind of experimental phase into my 20s when I went to university and left home. Um, yeah, I, I all of my teenage angst was repressed in into reading terrible fantasy novels mostly. Sure. And did you have a stupid hair phase in, in your 20s? I tried to have a stupid hair phase in my 20s. I went to the hairdresser and I said I would like to have um, kind of the top short and then the back long, what now would be probably termed a mullet. And he said, uh, are you a dyke? And I said, just a trim, thanks, because it felt like so much loaded onto that hair choice uh, that I was like, I don't want to say something about myself with my hair. I just want to be a person, you know. Yeah, I'll hit a softball when the time is right. Yeah, I like. I just. I don't. I yeah. Don't make me. Don't make me say something with my hair. I just want it to be my hair. So no, I'm afraid I've never gone through a proper oh. stupid hair phase. Oh yeah, else. I had some stupid hair phases. Like, what was your stupidest hair phase? My stupidest hair phase was was also when I was in ninth grade, the age my kids are now, where my hair was very long, ninth and tenth grade, very long, and like my hair gets frizzy. It's not curly oh, nice. like yours, so it doesn't fully jufro. That's what my brother does. It just gets sort of long. But I also wasn't good at hair care, so there was like a lot of split ends and oh, whatever. And then I like did like the shaved patch, so the ponytail over the shaved patch in the back. Ooh, that's intense. The shaved patch in the back would be like bleached. Oh, oh, sweetheart. <laughs> so. Look, the band Faith No More was popular at the time. Uh, it was, you know, the, the 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 it was a plausible look for the era. Sure, it was. I took what arguably was a like vaguely plausible look if you were sort of a metalhead type headbanger skater dude. Uh, but then I ruined it by also wearing a uh, fedora, um, like a denim jacket with like heavy metal band like Motorhead patches sewn on and iron maiden patches sewn on and then oh yeah i'm getting a picture now very strong and a rubber elephant nose Uh, what (laughs) i'll send you a picture please uh, please do from my ninth grade yearbook but uh it was uh it was not it was not good um rubber elephant nose so i was like into being like aggressively weird yeah, okay, I get that. Yeah, I totally get that. I was I was pretty aggressively weird. I'd, I went through a phase, not a hair phase, but of making my own clothes and sort of making them deliberately not fit the current fashions. That was fun. I wore, I wore my dad's old overalls with his old um, activist badges on them. So there was a, so there were like these um, overalls, green overalls. They had a rainbow patch on the front. Um, a rainbow, and then there was a, a badge that said "Export Fraser, not Uranium," which is about uh-huh. Malcolm Fraser, who was exporting uh, uranium from. But it's funny because my last name is Fraser, and then there were, yeah, there were all these various kind of old activist badges, and I would I would wear that with over a T-shirt on which I had painted uh, quite a friendly-looking octopus, um, really with kind of goofy crossed boggly eyes, and that's what I thought was cool. And then, like, yeah, I went through a phase of not wearing shoes and stuff like that 
we all we all go through that. Oh yeah. There was a few times where like in high school where I would wear like a summer dress. Oh nice. Uh like a full flowery, like, you know, summer dress and people would say why are you but i i also like i hit puberty early so i was real big yeah and you know hairy and so people would be like why are you in drag and i would say i'm not in drag i'm just wearing a dress um well i think that's a valid and important distinction to make yeah. and i'm glad that you felt like you needed to be on the forefront of that conversation yeah I, you know genuinely i think you probably you probably made space for somebody else by doing that oh sure yeah i mean even in san francisco this is in high school in the early 90s and I was telling my kids this story recently. I like organized a, it was a, my first big organizing lesson. A friend of mine came to school at the beginning of, of 10th grade and was the first out daikunk in our high school. Ooh. And her, you know, put, she put a, like a no homophobia sticker on her locker and it was like defaced with all this homophobic stuff. And so I went with her and we marched down and got a bunch of queer nation stickers and like put them on our lockers and they got defaced again. And then we organized everybody in the school to be allies and put queer, queer stickers up on their lockers in solidarity. And then there was like the homophobic backlash stickers and it sort of escalated until the school, like the administration had to do stuff. And then, there, of course, there were the centrist tone policers who were like, I don't care about the content of the stickers. I care about the residue adhesive. Um, <laughs> of course, of course. But yeah, you, you wore a summer dress uh, to school and had it not be dragged so that Timothy Chalamet could wear a halter neck on the red carpet. <laughs> That's your legacy, NATO. That's right. Someone tell Timothy Chalamet that he stands on the shoulders of giants, a.k.a. me. <laughs> <laughs> so where can people find you online, NATO? Uh, people can find me uh, at Elon Musk's Twitter at NATO Green or on Instagram at Mr. NATO Green, where, where there's more action of late. I have a couple of albums out that uh, I get the best royalties if you buy them from Bandcamp, so please do that. And uh, I have a, I'm doing a live taping of the podcast that I do, The Bituation Room, with Francesca Fiorentini for SF Sketch Fest next Sunday, the 22nd. Uh, piano Fight, and then I have a few dates in LA in February if people want to see me in Los Angeles. Excellent. Um, I enjoy you on Instagram. I also enjoy having you on the gargle and when you appear on the bugle. So it's always good to talk to you, NATO. I hope I hope you keep doing the parenting thing. And <laughs> I, I can't, I mean, it'll, it'll keep being agonizing, I imagine. Yeah. Always a pleasure to see you, Alice. It was lovely to talk to you. I think you're doing a great job, if that counts for anything. <laughs> it doesn't, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, do you know her, or do you not? This stuff is mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doffers at every frame. Loudy rifle doll, loudy rifle